Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Disney Film Project Podcast. This is the show where we peruse the fine array of Disney films, stopping briefly to smell the roses before plowing forward on our tractors of knowledge into the fields of bountiful Disney goodness. I am your host, Ryan Kilpatrick, proprietor and blogger of Disney Film Project at DisneyFilmProject.com. My co-host this evening, two of the finest film buffs ever known, yay, ever known to man. First up, Mr. Todd Perlmutter, blogger at touringplans.com and chief technical officer of DisneyDrivenLife.com. Hello, Todd. Hey, Ryan. How's it going? It is going well. So I turned that back at you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I, I, I understand you fixed a fine meal this evening. Uh, it, you were, it was being bragged upon earlier. Yeah, I was kind of psyched that it came out as good as it did because I was really worried there for the first hour I was cooking it. First, wait, you said hour you were cooking? That's... Yeah, it took, about, it took about two hours to make, so. Wow, that's dedication, man. I, I'm impressed. Very impressed. Could... It, was a, it was basically a vegetarian stew. Oh, well, okay, stew. Okay, that makes sense. All right. Stew takes a while. Yeah. All right, okay. I was going to say, I, I don't cook anything for two hours, but that's, that's a whole other story. Unless it's you, barbecue. You in the microwave or one? No, 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 no. Now I cook, but, but you know, I, I always find things that – because by the time I am desperate enough to cook, I'm hungry enough that it needs to take 15 minutes or I'm just going to call somebody and have them do it for me. All right, but this is off topic. Our other co-host is the one and only Miss Brianna Alessio, renowned blogger at The Adventures of Brie at adventuresofbrie.blogspot.com. Hello, Brie. Hey, Ryan. How are you? I'm well. Thanks. Thank you for asking. How sweet of you. Other people don't ask, you know. Oh, wait. Oh, well, I tied to ask. But that's well, okay. I care. I care. So This yeah. is true. That is the difference. We care, Ryan. Oh. <laughs> this is true. Todd's got a pipe in, you know. He does, doesn't he? <laughs> but I guess we can let it let it slide this time. Yeah, the, just this time. Yeah, just this time. The most important part of our show, the lovely and talented producer, Ms. Cheryl Perlmutter, who edits all of the wonky sluicishness out of the show and uh, provides the wonderfulness that, that has become our show that everyone has loving so much. If you really like the show, it's really because of Cheryl, because she just takes all these random words that we say and makes them into something nice. Hello, Cheryl. How are you? Hello. Good. How are you? I am well. I must, I must now must. give up my seat soon, so... Oh, <laughs> uh, but, but you have tofutis, so it's all good. All right. Well, go enjoy your tofutis, Cheryl, and we will, we will speak with you later. All right. From time to time here on the show, we plan to have friends of the show on to discuss one of their favorite films. Today, we're happy to have the one and only Miss J.L. Knopp, neurotic Disney mom number one, founder of Disney Driven Life, fellow blogger with Todd and myself at touringplants.com, all-around swell gal, and whose favorite film, I believe, is Tron Legacy. No, is Alice in Wonderland. Is that correct, J.L.? That is correct, Ryan. Hello, everyone. How are you this evening, J.L.? I'm doing really well. You got to enjoy Todd's fine supper that he cooked? Oh, it was delish. Yes. He, he was telling us how he cooked it for like two hours, and, and that kind of frightened me a little bit, but, you know. I missed the whole thing. I laid out on the couch and took a nap. Well, yeah. That's how most of us prepare for this show. I, so <laughs> you're in fine company. All right, so we are discussing today your favorite film, JL, which is Alice in Wonderland. Why is this your favorite movie? Okay, this movie is my favorite movie because it's slightly off. You know, Wonderland is not a perfect world. It's beautiful. It's whimsical. It's fun. But something isn't quite right. 
So in my mind, it's an exaggerated version of the world that, as I understand it to be, and it highlights some interesting truths that I think many people like to pretend aren't a part of life. That was deep. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought like you thought it was like colorful or something. <laughs> That's, that wow. too. That too. Okay. <laughs> All right, then. So uh, I'm impressed. All right. You're going to fit in well here. Uh, all right. So Alice in Wonderland was a movie released in 1951 by the Walt Disney Studios. It was something that Walt Disney had tried to put together for almost three decades. Uh, he first one of his first shorts, I'm assuming all of us fine Disney folk on this show know this, but one of Walt's first shorts starred Alice, uh, his first shorts in Kansas City, and it was named Alice's Wonderland. It had a live-action Alice going into a cartoon Wonderland, and he uh, then produced many, many, many Alice comedies, as they were called, featuring that same gag. Uh, I have watched, I believe, 75% of those Alice comedies. I don't recommend it. Impressive. <laughs> That's yeah. pretty awesome, man. Yeah. You can, you can go look at DisneyFilmProject.com and then look, look and click on Alice Comedies. There's a whole topic, and you can read my reviews of all of them. I really think yeah. that is an accomplishment that is worthy of being put on your tombstone. It almost led to my tombstone. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. But, I mean, those, those films are about what you would expect from 1920. Two to 1927 animation in, in somewhere in that range. Uh, later on, when Walt uh, got a little more established, Mickey Mouse was going, he uh, considered doing a similar thing with a live-action star going into an animated world uh, in 1933 with Mary Pickford, who uh, was, a, was a favorite actress of his. Um, in 1937, they started work on uh, Alice in Wonderland as an animated feature uh, to be featured after Pinocchio, actually. Um, but it was while uh, Snow White was in development, they, they did a short called Through the Mirror, which is kind of a, a takeoff on Through the Looking Glass, the second Alice in Wonderland book. It was a Mickey short, and they used it to test out some of the animation scenes and things like that. In 1938, Disney registered the title Alice in Wonderland with the Motion Picture Association of America. So they had plans to make it, but once the war hit, uh, and, and by the war we mean World War II, let me clarify that. Um, the war, the Alice in Wonderland got shelved. Then after the war, they announced that uh, in 1945 that Ginger Rogers was going to star as Alice in, in a new Disney production of Alice in Wonderland, which I think would have made this a much different film. Uh, but that's just me. Uh, in 1951, the film finally came out, uh, much more modernized. Mary Blair took over the uh, the visualization of the film, whereas before it had been based on the etchings and the wood carvings from the and the that look from the original book, uh, which made it much more of a uh, a very tight look to the backgrounds and everything. When Mary Blair took over, it was very loose and kind of stylized backgrounds as opposed to the to the tight stuff. So. Uh, that's kind of the history of where Alice in Wonderland came from. There's a story to this film in the sense that there's Alice, who's the main character. She sees a white rabbit, chases it down and hole into Wonderland and spends the rest of the movie chasing him. That's about it, really. So, far so, as... so much more. You just have to dig deeper. Which you obviously have, Dale, because <laughs> you're so I am I am on board with, with, 
with the digging deeper. Um, well, you know, something that um, we know we were noticing earlier, or at least I was, uh, the actual the story that you see in the movie actually is surprisingly chapter for chapter. The transitions between the scenes are pretty much the same up until a certain point from the original Lewis Carroll work. Yeah, it is. There's. I think I, I looked at this earlier. Um, looked at the copy of the book that we have upstairs, and I think there's two or three chapters in in the original Alice uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland that are not represented in the film. Uh, I can't remember. I can't remember the exact number, but it's it's. You're right. It's pretty close. Almost you know transition for transition, chapter for chapter. Yeah, um, they they do they cut out um a whole major character which is the Duchess. Mm-hmm. Okay, and because the Duchess as was the uh, actual owner of the Cheshire Cat. Understood. They get to a certain point. I mean, it's the details of it are are incredibly similar. But I mean, that's because, like you said earlier, Walt had a fantastic love of this story. I mean, he just it was a story that he took with him from his childhood on forward, and for you know fifty years basically. Yeah. Well, you know. and he he connected with it very uh, like like you said from childhood forward. But and and I'm make I'm poking fun about the whole story thing because they're really like it, the scenes are connected, but they're very loosely connected. But each internal scene has its own logic and and those sorts of things. But do do you have you guys heard the story of how this book was, came into being? Because it make it when you understand that, then it makes sense. From there, the way the book came into being is Lewis Carroll and uh, some friends of his were literally on the banks of the Thames, and their children were bored, so they got into a um, a boat of some kind. I, I don't know what kind. Ro- of boat. Just a rowboat. That's all it was. There you go. Uh, and as they started rowing, the the children were so bored. He started telling these stories, and it was the same sort of thing. He, you know. The stories flow the same way they do in the film, as they as and then they do in the later book. It's just that he found that white rabbit device to tie things together, um, as well as the Duchess character that you were talking about, Todd. But it, it makes mm-hmm. sense because as they're going down the river, they might not have known. Okay, we're going to have to stop here, or we got to stop here. So he was just kind of letting things go free form from his brain, and they rem- he remembered them later and was able to write it down. Um, it, it goes well beyond that too. Um, a lot of the characters in the story and a lot of the the what poems but you know them as music the musical numbers that are in the in the disney movie are actually about that day okay um you know we can i don't want to jump too far ahead but um but i might as well i'll just roll with it jump um yeah so the uh the caucus run scene right which we can get to what when specifically that fits in later on but the characters in that each each of the birds um, represents a different character in Lewis Carroll's family. Okay, besides Alice represents Alice. His his um, I forget which daughter is was Alice. Maybe it's just it's not Alice. It's I, I get kind of lost in there. But the the two other birds represent his other daughters: the eagle, the eaglet, and the um. There's the there's a parrot or something like that. And then the dodo is Lewis Carroll himself. Okay, because Lewis Carroll's real name is not Lewis Carroll, right? It's it's Charles Dodgson, right? And he actually had a stutter, uh, so he actually would – he'd say his own name, he would go to Dodgson. So he was – so his nickname was Dodo, so that's – the character is actually him. Oh, wow. I, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. So um, – and so when you, when you look at that, which is kind of odd because he's probably a bit more out of touch in the, in the animated movie than he is in the actual book. Okay, and he, but he plays a larger role – in the animated movie than he does in the book. It's again, just the characters that are the family are just kind of locked to that one scene of the caucus run. 
And, uh, you know, and the caucus run is just it's, – it's a race, but it's a race where everybody wins and everybody loses, right? Because you just keep, follow, you keep running in a circle. That's why the poem goes the way it does where, you know, now, now we're in front and now we're behind and, you know, we're in the beginning and we're in the end because, you, you're, run, because you're running in a circle. Everybody wins, everybody loses. It's kind of like modern-day education system. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he just went, like, old-school knowledge all the way back to political commentary in, like, one little – one yeah. fell swoop. There's a lot of Jumping political back. commentary in this uh, in this story. There so- is sociology. It's all there. <laughs> really, I hope you guys can teach me because I didn't see any of that. <laughs> I, was trying, I was trying to figure out what was going on, so I'm with you, Bree. So, <laughs> let Todd JL educate us, because I was please yeah. educate us. Yeah. Um, but I know you were saying, Bree, the credits and, and things reminded you of some th- of, of other Disney films, you know. Yeah, the the credits reminded me a lot of Lady and the Tramp, how they kind of showed the sketch designs, with, and the music was very similar too, to the uh, beginning music in Lady and the Tramp as well. I like that. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense because it's this, it's the same uh, same era, right? Lady and the Tramp was 1955. This is 1951, so it makes a lot of sense, you know. All right, so we open the movie with uh, with Alice sitting in a tree. The sister sitting, her older sister sitting underneath. Alice is sitting there with her cat Dinah, bored to tears, hearing her sister talk about William the First. Her her cute little cat Dinah. Dinah is adorable. I love Dinah. I do too. And it's in this moment, in this very beginning part of the film, that I immediately connect with Alice. I just. I relate to her because she does this thing and she does it throughout the whole film where she she dances between being bored with the mundane routine and the nonsense of accepting society's mores without challenging them first and then but at the same time you know um, being alarmed by the insecurity of stepping outside of that framework of conformity and and I feel the same way about life in general. Like, I don't like to conform to expectations that people have for me without questioning it first. Um, but at the same time, I recognize that um, there's, a, there's a degree of conformity that has to happen in order for society to function and to prevent it from devolving into chaos and insanity. And just that, that fine line between the two. And, and she, you can see that struggle happening with her in the very, very beginning where she kind of has this epiphany and she's like, nonsense, that's it, Dinah, you know? And, um, you know, it's like, oh, this is, you know, the answer to my problem with my mundane life. But then we go on to the next scene where she starts to fall down the rabbit hole and, and we see that, that dance start to, start to happen. Yeah, you're absolutely right because she's it's set up so well. Like that first scene really sets up that balance and what the the part you were just quoting about the nonsense. It's that's exactly the whole I mean, I guess the thesis of the film is is dancing that line between between conformity and nonsense and you know what what's appropriate, what's not and you know you you see her, you know, as she gets later in the film realizing that too much nonsense is a little too much. So great observation. Uh, what, like you mentioned, she gets bored. Um, did anybody else know, has anybody else noticed this is, must have been like the fourth or fifth time I've seen this film, but you know, her sister sitting under the tree reading the book and Alice is in the tree and she gets down to start singing this, the, in, in a world of my own song, talking about all the different things that, that would be in a world of her own. When she gets down from the tree, her sister's not there. Well, here's the thing. This is what I think, is that her getting down from the tree is also part of the dream. 
I, I tend to agree. I do agree. Because, because here's the thing, right? Is is she went and played in the flowers and like sat underneath the flowers and everything in the beginning scene, but at the end she's in front of the tree, propped up against the tree, sleeping. It's almost like she was never talking to her sister until her sister walks up to her at the end. Oh you know? yeah. Oh. I didn't think of it that way. Good observation. It could be. Yeah. We are all about the education tonight. All right. So, Alice uh, follows the white rabbit. She gets down from the tree, sees the white rabbit, and she chases it down the hole into Wonderland, which if you have any knowledge of the English language, you've probably heard that part of the story before. Um, or if you're a Johnny Depp fan. Oh, it's, it's, it's one of the most famous quotes from the, from the whole thing is, is down the rabbit hole, right? Absolutely. Um, and then, the, so there's the then there's the falling sequence, which I think has not been done as well in any version of this film, or any version of the story rather, as as it is in this film. It's excellent uh, in this movie. Yes. So creative. The things that happen are just in that short journey from you know the tree trunk to the bottom where the the door is. Yep. Like like a dress for a parachute. I'm just saying that's some dress. <laughs> <laughs> it's a dress that has magical powers. It's it, all women want that. This is, correct? this is true. This is true. I think all women do. We're kind of uh, we have this secret desire to always wear hoop skirts and you know parachute dresses and things like that. I, guess. I, I know, but it, it's huge and it's fluffy and it stays like that way throughout. It's like kind of like I've been described that way: huge and fluffy and stay that way. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> Um, so she gets to the bottom and we have the famous doorknob sequence with the, um, you know, the shrinking and the growing and the key and then and, and the stuff and the thing with the deal. And it goes on. Hey, hey, wait, Ryan. <laughs> just kidding. You're going too fast. Um, <laughs> I just want to say, I love the part when, um, I think it's, is it the, the cookie JL? Is it the, when she eats the cookie or, or drinks the, um, whatever that is that she, she gets really First, she drinks a potion and she shrinks down, and then um, she gets, you know, flustered. And the doorknob offers her a box full of these little, you know, biscuit things, and she right. gets big. And then she gets exasperated and starts crying. And I have to say, in that part of the movie, I just and she does this throughout the whole movie as well. And again, I can relate. I don't know, maybe I'm the only one who who does this, but have you noticed that? She is talking to herself reasonably about, you know, what is the smart thing to do? What is the smart thing to do? And the whole time she acts in a manner that's completely contrary without hesitation. While she's talking to herself about the smart thing to do and then does not hesitate at all to do the dumb thing. I, I, it's a theme of the movie, right? I mean, right. it's... it's I mean, it's it's what's going on. Is she's she's in this state of turmoil. You don't really know 100% why, because there's no there's no backstory or lead into the whole thing. It's just it's there and it's clear. And I was talking with Jail earlier that I kind of sort of feel the whole drink me, eat me, grow, shrink thing is actually a reflection of her state of mind at those times in the movie, right? It's because when she's when she's sure of what she has to do, she tends to shrink, or when she's she's becoming more reasonable she tends to shrink back right but when she is becoming you know more um more 
forceful and flowing with it and getting angry, she tends to grow, right? And I don't mean that that's, she's necessarily growing up, but there's a reflection because, you know, JL says, said to me earlier, she said, well, you know, she shrinks when she, when she drinks and eats, when, and eats to grow. And I said, well, that's not true. That's contradicted a few times throughout the whole thing. It's, you know, there's the mushroom which she eats to shrink and grow. She eats a carrot to shrink, right? And there's, there's all these little bits and pieces all over the place that are like that. And it's, it's very reflective of, you know, what – that goes back to the original book anyway is the book is about a tale of, of a girl who's coming of age, right? I mean there's, there's something where she's supposed to be growing up. Now that is really lost in this movie, okay? I mean it, it's literally – I think they focus too much on the wrong things from this and I think that's why you know you had a comment about um, Walt's feelings towards the movie Ryan yeah I think if you if you read some of the things that he said after the movie and some of the things the animators said after the movie they it was not one of their favorite films Walt said that the movie sort of lacked heart which you know when you think of Disney films that's what you think of is that there's always a heart at the at the core of, of, of any Disney film you know that's what makes it a Disney film um, especially, well, I, I should caveat that. That should that's what makes it a Walt Disney film. Um, the films that came afterward, perhaps, maybe a little different. But um, when you think of films that were made while Walt was running the studio, you think of this, you know, nice heart, and even if even sometimes to the point of over sentimentality in some of the films. But that's that's what you think of, and this is not that at all. You know, there's not a sentimentality or, or, or over, you know. Uh, overabundance of heart to the to the film there's just kind of this stream just pulling things along uh through throughout and you know and even though this is my favorite movie i can totally understand that this this movie just feels like a bunch of segments that were put together and i could totally understand and see walt maybe after the film is released or when he sees it or whatever sitting and having a quiet moment and thinking to himself I saw that going so much better in my head, you know. Um, it's a fantastic story. It's the the fantasy aspect of it is really, I mean, the creativity. You have to think about it. Some of the things that they do in this movie, the concepts that are put in it, are actually, in my mind, some of the most creative concepts in all of Disney films. But um, no, it's not something with this, you know, really heartfelt, you're just crying by the end of it. Although I will confess to have crying a time or two when I've watched the scene of her in the Tolji Wood and she's so distraught and she can't get home. But that's just me. I understand. Um, I do. Do you do? <laughs> oh, Brie, we're going out for lunch and we'll have a discussion okay. about this. Um, yes, we But I can, I mean, I give it that. It's not one of these films that I think it takes a certain type of mind and a certain type of um, humor to be able to appreciate this film. It's not a, you know, everyone who watches this is going to gonna enjoy it. You have to be able, like we were saying, like I said to you earlier, you have to be able to dig deeper to really kind of get out of this story. It's not just spoon-fed to you. Yeah, and I think part of the that fragmentation is something else that I was reading when I was talk, uh, you know, looking at things for the film is Ward Kimball, who was, uh, you know, 
one of my idols, Disney Renaissance man, you know, played in a, played in a uh, Dixieland jazz band, master animator, had a train in his backyard. I mean, you know, who wouldn't want to be like that? Uh, but Ward, who was one of the key animators on, on most of the Disney films, the animated films, said that, you know, it, there was just too many cooks in the kitchen when they were making this film, that there were five different directors for lack of a better term because there wasn't really a director on the film and so everybody had their own sequence and everybody was trying to put their own stamp on things and it wasn't one consistent vision all the way through and it wasn't even one animator as the key animator on on each of the characters it was you know each segment was kind of divided up differently and i think that leads to a fragmented film with lots of brilliance in each fragment but nothing that ties them together yeah, it definitely has that feel. But speaking of the fragments, we were talking about the falling in the doorknob. Did we want to go back there? Oh, I never, there. I never <laughs> finished that. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, when, when I, I guess it is when she eats the, the cookie. I love when she gets small and lands in that little, the little bottle floats through the keyhole. And right there, the graphics on that scene alone are incredible when she's floating through the water and everything. That really was quite an amazing scene, and it, it seems like they had to do a lot of work to get that perfect. Now, have you ever noticed this? I don't know if this is going to end up being a commentary on Alice in Wonderland or a commentary of J.L. Knopp, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Both are equally valid and entertaining. You know, I just... In that scene, too, I relate to Alice because this this is true in my life. In that scene, she is so distraught and starts crying about something that really maybe isn't that big of a deal that if she just kind of sat there and figured it out, she'd be able to, you know, figure out how to get out of the rabbit hole, whether it's climb all the way up or whatever. But she just breaks down, has like a complete emotional breakdown and is crying to the point where she's, you know, got three feet of water in the room. And then she shrinks, falls in this bottle and is in a life threatening situation and where she could drown or whatever and she goes from having an emotional breakdown about something that's not so important to a life-threatening situation and she's like oh sigh what am i going to do now and this is truth in my life like i will be with my kids you know oh my gosh you're tracking dirt in the house and like being ready to cry some days you know and then I think of moments like when we were told by our pediatrician that our youngest daughter was so sick and, um, you know, that she might suffer brain damage and just being like, oh, okay, so what's the next step? What do we do? How do we take care of this? And just being completely calm and, you know, in control of the whole situation. The irony. It amuses oh, I, me. I, I think I don't think you're alone in that. I mean, I, I can relate to something today even of you know my son is is playing um epic mickey this afternoon and he starts crying because he keeps falling and getting killed in the video game then you know later today we're playing basketball and he gets upside the head with the basketball falls over on the ground gets back up dusts himself off and starts walking away <laughs> it's like okay fake death didn't bother you but <laughs> You know, brain damage <laughs> potentially. It's that's just, a problem. <laughs> that's you know. Yeah. <laughs> it was. It was. It was weird. Uh, but I, I think you're right. It's. 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 It, I think that's part of what we've been talking about through this whole movie is the whole. You know, 
normal versus abnormal, and Alice's reactions are in that same thing, same vein, right? Her reaction to being stuck there with the doorknob is abnormal, and her react as is her reaction in the Sea of Tears. Um, so you're right; it's it's pretty interesting. However, the irony is is that it kind of is normal, at least in my life, it's normal, and that's one of the reasons why this is my favorite film is because these really crazy out there. Um, things are actually a reflection okay granted some somewhat of an exaggerated reflection but an exact but an, a reflection nonetheless of our actual world very true very true so and we i think we've made it five ten minutes into the movie and we've been <laughs> talking for about 45 minutes so that's good we're, we're on our normal pace guys jl hasn't slowed us down a bit <laughs> so we go from the sea where she's floating in the bottle and, and wash, she, she washes up into the caucus race, which is, um, frankly, one of my favorite scenes in the film. Because uh, Todd explained it earlier, they're all running around in a circle trying to figure out who's going to, how everyone's going to get dry. And, of course, the, the waves keep crashing over them and getting them wet again, which, to me, summarizes life in general. That's kind of the way I feel every day. Can I say something? Yes. yes. No. <laughs> Thank you again, Todd. Wait, do we need to take a vote on that? <laughs> yes, Bree, go ahead. Okay, all through the scene of the caucus race, um, I I was literally, I know this won't do much for audio, but I was staring at the screen like this. And, and <laughs> what I'm doing right now is giving a blank impression. Um, and, and because I just thought to myself, why are you running in circles? Just walk over <laughs> to the side. Like, why are you keep... Because you're just going to keep getting wet. Why are you doing this? Well, I almost cried. Can I just tell you that as a mother of three children, we have a caucus race in our house at least three times a day. Like, <laughs> I want to see... I would love to know how many mothers out there can relate to this. But the layout of our um, of our home, the bottom floor, you... There's a there's a circular path where you can run through the living room, through my master bedroom, through the master bathroom that comes out to the foyer that goes back out to the living room again, and you can just go around in circles. And my children will chase each other like this for endless periods of time daily. We have oh. we have a yeah, caucus it, race in our home. Same same in my house, except it's through the kitchen and uh, past the breakfast room into the living room and back through the kitchen. And it usually happens when Sally's making dinner. Yeah. <laughs> I have no deep thoughts about this, just an observation. <laughs> <laughs> JL has replaced Jack Handy in uh, deep thoughts for those SNL uh, fans. So uh, Alice goes through the caucus race, and Alice is the one who actually, which I think is kind of ironic, point, Alice being the sort of silly person that she's been portrayed to be in the beginning of the movie, is the one who points out, like, this is kind of pointless what you're doing here, uh, but yet they keep doing it. Um, that's what yeah, yeah. Bree's like, yeah, exactly. I don't get it. Uh, Maybe Brianna is Alice. <gasps> Whoa! No, I have the wrong hair color. Yeah, but but do you? Do you I really? Don't. We don't know. It's a wig. Okay. <laughs> also, do it for audio. <laughs> All right, so. We finish the caucus race, and Alice gets onto dry land and runs into Tweedledee and Tweedledum. So, 
everything to this point has been basically tracking directly with Lewis Carroll's first book, which is Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And then um, this piece, the Tweedledee, Tweedledum piece, actually comes from Through the Looking Glass. Uh, and what they do is interrupt her and, and carry on in their Tweedledee, Tweedledumish way, and then recite the walrus and the carpenter story, which is in, which again is in Through the Looking Glass. The the walrus and the carpenter bit that that sequence where they cut away to the animation of the walrus and the carpenter that was that was what I felt was like the best storytelling piece of the film. Like that was a part where I could watch it and go, okay, here goes A to B to C to D. Whereas in other parts of the film, I was like, what, huh? You know that that little seven minute sequence I thought was 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 as far as storytelling the best part uh, of the film. So JL, what do you think of Tweedledee and Tweedledum? You know, it's really interesting that you asked that question because I like all of the characters in the film. I you know I love the personalities of them: the insane ones, the crazy ones, the the fun loving ones, uh, the the silly ones, but. Uh, you know, even the Queen of Hearts, like, I can relate to her once a month. So I'm okay. I'm good with her. But um, with with Tweedledee and Tweedledum, these are the only characters in the film I do not like. And the reason why I have a problem with them is they are extremely manipulative. And I, yes. have, I, take, I take issue with manipulative people. And you can see them working it on her. They are going to do what they need to do to manipulate her emotionally so that she will act in a manner that they want her to act um, and I, frankly, I'm proud of Alice with how she handles them. She handles them how you have to handle most manipulative people. You have to appease them to a certain degree. And then at some point you just say enough and walk away. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm not going to word this as nicely as you just did, but, um, I find them creepy as heck and, and their, and their song as well is extremely annoying. Um, and I'm very sorry, Ryan, but I do not care for this, the scene at all with the walrus and the oysters. I'm very sorry. It's disturbing. Oh. <laughs> it is. It's on many levels. If you've listened to this show before, JL, you know that um, I tend to like the most disturbing pieces of most of the films we talk about. So <laughs> that's okay. I just, I, I'm not going to lie. Yes, it is disturbing. But I thought just from a, as somebody who watches a lot of shorts, of Disney shorts, that Walrus and Carpenter sequence felt like it, just a regular old Disney short. Like it could have been a silly symphony or, you know, anything like that. It, it just felt that way. Yes. It's pretty dark and disturbing, especially when the poor carpenter comes out and the walrus is eating all of the oysters. Um, I felt for the carpenter. I was like, go get him, go chase down that walrus and beat him over the head with the bat or whatever you got to do, man. But uh, I thought, I just thought that they told the story of that, you know, poem, I think it originally was, uh, very well. That's true. It is some of the finest storytelling in the movie, but the story itself is just rather alarming, especially the part where they're leading the little oysters away from Mother Oyster. And as a mother, like, that's just very disturbing. <laughs> and, and even when the carpenter is chasing the walrus in the end, his motive is not a good one. He wanted to eat the oysters. He's just mad because he didn't get any. <laughs> Still, you know what? I think the carpenter should have had a frying pan, like tangled. Like he could have gone after that that walrus with that frying. That, pan. that right, poor choice of weapon. That's that's what it this boils is, down to. It was, yeah, exactly. It all comes down to the weapon. Weapon choice is always important, especially in Disney films. And you always yeah, have to go with the frying, frying pan. pan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Gotta have a frying pan. Yes. Yep. 
All right. So we go, you can see how kind of like the scenes don't bear relation to one another. There's not like a connective tissue between the scenes. So you went from the, from the tears to the caucus race. You know, there was some connection there with the C, but then you go to Tweedledee and Tweedledum and then the Walrus and Carpenter speech. Those things are, are, are not related to the caucus race really. And then we go to the next scene, which is uh, as she's chasing the white rabbit again and goes and sees him at his house. And this is, this is something that was taken from the book where um, the rabbit sees her and calls her Marianne and the rabbit in the, correct me if I screw this up here, Todd, cause I probably will. You're doing fine. Um, thank you. Thanks for the encouragement, man. I appreciate it. Um, it he calls her Marianne because in the book, his uh, maid servant is Marianne. And in the book, he sends Marianne into the house to get the duchess's gloves. Well, in this case, it's, he's getting his own, but it's the same, same idea. She, he sends Alice into the house to get his gloves and she eventually, uh, she sees another of the, uh, I believe it was biscuit type things was the, was the, uh, term. JL? <laughs> Little biscuits. <laughs> Little biscuits. Um, that has a completely different term when you're from Georgia. That little biscuits is like a biscuit that's you know half the size of your head as opposed to the whole size. But it doesn't well, in let's, England, let's if I'm not mistaken, in England a biscuit is a cookie. That is correct. Um, neither here nor there, but J uh, JL is correct. It is a cookie, uh, and so Alice eats the the biscuit cookie and grows to the size of a giant and takes up the whole house. Well, what else I want to say is, is that here we really see the white rabbit. Um, what a drama queen. True. That's all I've yeah. got. Yeah. I mean, he's such a drama queen. I, if I were Alice at that point in the movie and I saw the drama going on, I just would have walked away and been like, too much for me, dude. <laughs> well, to be honest, Alice is kind of a drama queen, too. Not in but the same manner. No, but, you know, she, she has her moments. She's emotionally distraught, Ryan. It's her movie. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't she entitled? <laughs> is it, is it though, Todd? Is it really? <laughs> Everybody stop and think about that for a second and we'll move on. Uh, so what I like about the rabbit's house scene is Bill the lizard. I love I Bill. Yes. I enjoy seeing uh, the dodo comes along and drops Bill the lizard down the chimney to try and get Alice out. I feel for poor Bill. I just got to say, because the man is just, he's like, all he's doing is cleaning up in the garden and doing what he's supposed to do. And next thing he knows, he's getting dropped down a chimney on a monster. Yes. What's up with that? To quote Alice, poor Bill. <laughs> Indeed. Yes. But then, then the exciting stuff really starts to happen. And, you know, we get thrown into high drama here at this point because they try to set her on fire. Well, if you had a giant monster in your house, what would you do? Cook know. it and eat it. Get the frying <laughs> Thank you, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying. The only logical solution, really. It's a guy thing, I guess. You barbecue, right? That's right, exactly. <laughs> you guys are approaching this from the completely wrong angle. Alice is the heroine. You're not supposed to burn the heroine unless you're Joan of Arc. Thank you, JL. See? There's another female here now to back me up. Thank you. <laughs> I was taking it from the Hitchcock angle of like Psycho, where the heroine gets killed in like the first 45 minutes of the movie, and then we oh, flip to another so perspective. He just spoiled a movie. Here we go. Make the list. 
It was chocolate sauce. <laughs> hey, Psycho is a great movie. Don't don't ruin it. For, oh wait, I just did. Okay. Um, so, have you all ever noticed though that? And this is what I find interesting in this scene. Okay, Alice being the intelligent, bright young lady that she is in her moment of crisis, pulls it together, uses her brain, gets a carrot out of the garden, and shrinks down and is able to escape the scene. However, even though there is no more monster in the house, they continue to, or the dodo continues to work to burn the house down. I think that's a very interesting commentary on society, and maybe I'm just going deep here with that, but I think that that, in my mind, I'll put out a disclaimer here that the thoughts of and opinions of JL do not necessarily reflect those of Lewis Carroll, but I think, I think that that is an interesting illustration of the nonsense of our society, how people will continue to proceed in a direction, even when it's evident that a change of course is needed, necessary, or what they were working towards, you don't need to continue with that plan of action because it's no longer a solution and it actually becomes a destructive agenda. I think you're absolutely right. You are officially too smart for the show. You must leave now. (laughs) (laughs) No, think about it. Okay, I'm going to get on a little bit of a soapbox here, but like, you know, like the environmental issues, a lot of times we'll work in a direction that we think is good for, you know, the environment or whatever. And then we find out it's not, but we continue to do it. And I won't go into the topic of fluorescent light bulbs. That will be another Disney film project episode. But, you know, there it is. So things like, you know, in the medical field, some of the the drugs and the therapies that we try, even when we learn that maybe they're not the best thing to do and then they actually end up being destructive, we still continue on that course in spite of it just because we've started and we just don't want to bother changing. No, I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it goes back to the same things we were saying about the caucus race mm-hmm. in that scene. You know, it's keeping in the same destructive behavior, the same circle, the same running in, in circles. Like, I'm going to get dry by running in this circle even though there's water crashing over me. It's the same thing. The dodo is doing the exact same thing in this scene, serving the same purpose that he served in the caucus race scene. I think he's kind of the symbol of that, yes. you know, in this these first the, two, two pieces. He's the symbol of imbecility. There you go. And now, folks, you have learned way too much from this film. <laughs> I'm going to have to, like, go watch this movie again. Okay, I think we have all learned a lot tonight uh, so far about this movie. But there is more going on with this film, including, uh, I know, one of your favorite characters here, JL, the Cheshire Cat. The Cheshire Cat is my favorite character in all of Disney character dumb. I mean, Whoa. he he is awesome to me because of his... He's lovable, he's completely spontaneous, he's mischievous, um, but very endearing at the same time. He really is the first person in the movie to take a genuine interest in Alice's dilemma and offer a solution to her. And um, she's a little bit uneasy with him in the beginning, but then she, she kind of gets over it. And something else that I think that is interesting that he illustrates, he's very obviously insane but at the same time he is uh, he has he has moments and comments that he makes that are more rational than any other character in the entire film so for example she asks him I was wondering if you could tell me which way I should go and he says with complete logic and it's extremely rational 
that depends on which way you want to or which way you want to go you know where do you want to get to and she says oh well that doesn't matter and then he says well then it doesn't matter which way you go and he's so logical but it's coming from one of the most insane characters of the movie and this is i think another interesting commentary about society and you know i think we've all come across some pretty crazy people in life i know that i certainly have um but occasionally what we see as insane can be some of the most um, rational logic and truth um, that we will come across. And, I, and I'm just saying that, you know, we need to be open to that in life so that, you know, don't, don't stereotype and close people off. Sometimes they have something to offer even if they come across as a total whack job. I completely agree. Yeah, oh, the other thing I love about the Cheshire Cat is, you know, he makes the comment, oh, you can't help that. Everyone's, almost everyone's mad here is what he says. I love the brutal honesty in that and his total willingness to embrace that truth rather than deny it and pretend like it's not there. Yeah, absolutely. Amen. And for the record, the Cheshire Cat is my favorite Alice in Wonderland character as well. If I right? could, if I could, um, name a mascot for the neurotic Disney people, it would be the Cheshire Cat because he embodies a lot of the characteristics of a hardcore Disney fan, a neurotic Disney person. So true. I love it. No, I mean, you, you actually have a really good point. I, I'll take it a little less, you know, deep because um, I have the depth of a waiting pool. Ryan but... has to come up for air. <laughs> no, I'm just but but I can relate it to, to to us, the people, the four of us who are doing this show tonight, and the thousands of you I know who are listening. You know, we're all part of a you know ever burgeoning, growing Disney community, and I guarantee you that at one time or another, we've all been told you're nuts for moving there in the case of a couple of you uh, going as often as you do or watching that movie again or whatever but I like to think we're the most rational people there are because we are enjoying our lives and moving forward and doing what we love as opposed to a lot of these people who are stuck in the caucus race that is exactly it and this is why I'm saying the Cheshire Cat really in as in my opinion, is the embodiment of a neurotic Disney person, which is, I mean, this is the reason why I love him. He is my favorite. I, if I could, I would have a Cheshire Cat bedroom and sleep in it every night. I mean, I really am drawn to this character, and even though he's absolutely nuts. True enough? That, that, right. Yeah. Works absolutely. Works for me. So, all right, so JL, I have a question for you, oh, because... Dear. Right after the Cheshire Cat, we see, we see the caterpillar. Yes. Um, no, we don't. We no, don't? there's a scene. There's a scene before that. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. Please illuminate me, Todd. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, you get the the whole bread and butterflies and the flowers and the lilies singing and dancing. Uh, yes. Excuse me. Yes. Uh, which features my favorite song in the entire film, the All in the Golden Afternoon song. Yes. Yeah, I have to say, too, other than the Cheshire Cat, who is my favorite in this film, even though their appearance was very brief, the bread and butterflies are my other favorite. Yeah. <laughs> they are just so cute how they spread their wings, and it's buttered bread. But they don't stick to anything. Bread and butterflies in the flower garden come way before the Cheshire Cat. Oh, do they? 
Oh, oh really? We're out of order. We're out of order. That's We're fine. Very out of order. We are all out of order, but you know, that's that's to be expected. Good from fun and games at first, and then it all it all turns on her, and I can't help but feel like this is another illustration about the nonsense of the hypocrisy in our society when we become judgmental. Um, it's it's nonsensical. It's a hypocritical when you turn on somebody and just judge them. You know. Um, and, and, and another thing I think is very interesting is that in the flower bed in that scene, the one voice of compassion gets silenced. And that's Bud. You know, he starts yeah. to say, I think she's pretty. Quiet, Bud. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. He says, the, the... quiet, Bud, and his mouth gets covered. You're right. Fair. And they call Alice a weed, I believe. She's a weed. Yeah, they, they, they kick her out because she's a weed at the end. That's did, so did you know? Did you know the song um, is actually, it, it's, it's one of the poems from the book. It's put right. to music, okay? And it's actually, the poem itself was written by Carol, and it describes the afternoon where he first told the tale. Okay, everything he saw and how he, his emotion and what he felt while telling the tale and rowing in the boat with his family and being with his friends on that day. That's what this, this song is about. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a great song. I, I love that song just for a variety of reasons. I mean, number one, it's just a very beautiful, very pretty song. But it's also it's in the Alice in Wonderland ride at Disneyland, and it plays in the loops uh, outside the Magic Kingdom and in the Esplanade at Disneyland. And it's just anytime, as somebody who enjoys the parks as much as I do, anytime I hear that song, it it, it not only recalls the movie, but it recalls you know like kind of that sense of wonderment of before you get into Main Street. Because I've heard it so many times out in front of the Magic Kingdom or, in, or at Disneyland. So I love that song for a completely different reason. I love that song because they picked Catherine Beaumont for Alice and they had her sing the song. And you can tell in that choice that it's not a calculated choice. She's not star quality when it comes to singing. She actually has a flub up in the song and I'm inclined to think that that was accidental that you know where she goes you know and cracks her voice I'm inclined to think that that was actually not supposed to be in there but she couldn't hit the note and the fact that they left it in there that imperfection and just went with it I adore that oh I adore I adore her whole performance I think she um Catherine Beaumont is like makes this movie Sorry, JL, watchable for me because otherwise, like her performance is Alice and she pulls off that sense of wonderment and, and so well, like just, just the way that she uh, expresses herself and the voice acting, you know, she went on to do other films, but I think she went on to do the voice of Wendy and Peter Pan, but I thought this was her finest performance, you know, I agree uh, with that. I agree and, with that. To the point that when they redid the Alice in Wonderland ride out at Disneyland in 1986, they actually brought her back to do the voice work in that ride. And you can st- it's still there. That, 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 that voice that you heard in 55 is still, still there, you know, even though she recorded it 31 years later. It's kind of amazing if you've ever, ever heard it. That is awesome. But back to the flower garden scene, I just, I, I think, again, just an interesting commentary on you know, they're all good and they're happy she's there until they realize that she doesn't conform. And as soon as she doesn't, they realize that she doesn't conform, it's snap. Judgment comes in and she's out. She is kicked out. And, and, and 
you know, just that's nonsense. And unfortunately, that's a reality of our society too. We tend to, you know, as long as people conform, um, we're okay with them. And if they don't conform to our expectations, then it's like, you are out of here. And, and that's nonsensical. I don't think that we should operate that way. Amen, sister. Very true. All right. So back to the question I was going to ask you, JL. The caterpillar? Yes. What is up with this dude? Because I did not get this at all. <laughs> Are you ready for some more deep thoughts? All right. Hold on. Let's play the music. Everybody set the scene. All right. <laughs> deep oh, thoughts with JL. Someone should do the uh, who are you. Let's let's vote Todd. Todd's been quiet. Do the who are you. The who are you? I'm not getting that. I don't understand. Who are you? Uh, Here we go. Thank who you, James. Who are you? <laughs> Very good. Very good. I had a little more air with the blowing in there. I'm going to have to give that yeah. one to MJL. Okay. <laughs> the caterpillar, there's a few things that stick out to me about the caterpillar. Um, namely, he's the second person in the movie that seems to take somewhat of an interest in Alice's dilemma and actually try to help her. Albeit though, due to his personality, he's extremely offensive. Or maybe the, maybe the word is defensive because he seems to take offense to Alice and her, think, her habit of thinking out loud. Um, but also the other thing that sticks out to me is I tend to think that this is another in my mind, it's another commentary on society and the nonsense of trying to peg someone. He is just, he badgers her with trying to make her define herself and she's trying to figure it out. She doesn't really know and he will not let it drop. He cannot seem to be okay with the fact that she doesn't quite know who she is or how she fits into this picture. That's, and, and that's nonsensical. You know, why Why do we have to try to peg people and stick them in a certain category or a box? So you've said the word nonsense, like, I think 20 times in the last hour or so? Yes. That's good, because that's what I got from the film, was nonsense. So that's good. <laughs> Except you think the film is nonsense, and I think that it's trying to highlight the nonsense that happens in our society. Uh, I think you're probably right. And That's all then, I have to say about that. <laughs> the next scene is a good example of that, right? Yes, absolutely. So right after, right after the caterpillar, what do we have, Todd? Oh, we go to the uh, tea party, right? Indeed. Right, tea party comes right after the caterpillar, yep. as far as I remember. No, so the Cheshire no. Cat comes after the caterpillar, but we've already discussed no. the Cheshire Cat. Yes, oh, it did. Because yeah, the okay. Cheshire Cat says if you go this way, you'll see the Mad Hatter. If you go that way, you'll see the March Hare. You're right. So, yes, yeah, so we just messed me up. Don't Fine. question her. Wonderland. Yeah, that's all right. That's Wonderland. I'm somewhere else. It's okay. <laughs> don't, Who don't are you, Todd? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody else. Um, yeah, so we go to the Mad Tea Party, and uh, there's three characters at the Mad Tea Party. They are the Mad Hatter, the March Hare, and the Dormouse. And... Um, yeah, I think they're pretty much the definition of what you were saying, Ryan, right? They are they are the core exemplary of the nonsense right there. And that is what this tea party is. Yeah. I, I will say that I do I do love the Mad Hatter. Um, this version, not the Johnny Depp version. I that's a whole other podcast, but didn't get that one. Um this Mad Hatter though, uh 
Ward Kimball worked on him, and I mentioned before, I love Ward Kimball, and I love his animation. Um, I, I pretty much love everything he's ever done, and this is no exception. As, as crazy and nonsensical as the Mad Tea Party is, um, I think the combination of Ward Kimball's animation of the Mad Hatter and Ed Wynn's voice uh, as the Mad Hatter just makes for a really memorable character. So, and, and I imagine you can see that, right? Because we see the Mad Hatter walking around Fantasyland these days. You don't see a March Hare walking around. You don't see, you know, a, a Cheshire Cat. No offense, J.L. Um, you don't see, you know, all these other characters from the film. What you see is the Mad Hatter walking around. And I think he's, just in the few minutes that he's on screen, he's very... He makes an impact uh, just, I think, through the strength of the animation and the voice work, not so much of what he's doing. And, you know, it's not like there's any deep backstory or anything to the character. It's just he is the embodiment of the of the madness of this party. I totally. I want to make mention, too, that the Mary on Birthday is my favorite song from this film. I love this scene. I think that it's a I think it's symbolic of a unabashed celebration of life and all of the ludiocrity that happens in life, just completely celebrating it. And I love it for that reason. Um, it's this idea that every day is worth celebrating, and that is a very Disney-esque type concept. And in fact, yeah. I think that it should be the campaign for next year for Disney. I like that. Every day is an unbirthday. Unbirthday. We're going to celebrate That's... unbirthdays next year. All right. You heard it here first, folks. Please trademark that. Okay, there's a March Hare and Tweedledee and Tweedledum that walk around the parks. Okay. Um, but we've meant, so we've mentioned most of the other stuff that's below the story part as we're going through, just so you guys know. So we've yeah, there's, there's some extra things to mention, but I'll get to them. Yeah, we'll get there. Now, uh, there's a pearl of wisdom that comes out in this scene from the March Hare, and that's when the March Hare says, if you don't think you shouldn't talk. How much better off would we all be in life if we took that to heart? Amen, sister. Right. There would not be uh, nearly as many cable channels. <laughs> <laughs> so true. It is. Sure it's New Jersey. I'm putting that down as my favorite quote on my Facebook page, I think, if you don't think you shouldn't talk. There you go. I think that's perfectly fair. Okay. Uh, I like, I personally, so I mentioned I like the Mad Hatter, but I really like the uh, part where he's trying to put the watch back together. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> because it reminds me of my father <laughs> and his brand of uh, mechanical wizardry. Oh. You know, take something apart. Oh, it's not working? All right, let me take it all apart and then try to shove it back together. Um, and you can imagine how well that, that tends to work out. Ryan, I have a question for you. Yes, ma'am. Todd could not answer this for me, and I know there has got to be an answer out there somewhere in Disneyland world space. Um, have you ever noticed that when he smashes the watch, the screen goes to black and white for approximately a second, and then switches back to color? I have no idea why it does that. Can that you, is awesome. Can you enlighten me? Drum roll, no. please. <laughs> <laughs> there will be an appendix at the end of the show. <laughs> um, it's because there's some stuff that you're supposed to get from that. And yeah, I got nothing for you. It's black and white. It's black. I don't know. They ran out of paint. I don't know what the yeah. thing is. 
It, it could have been. Scene of uh, Wizard of Oz, only the opposite. Yes, like, but it's only for a second. And yeah, then he exactly. smashes the watch and then it's done. What, yeah. what she said. I'm going to go with Bree on this one. I have no idea. Moving on. All right. So we go from there. We go into uh, the Tolgi Wood, which we, we, we mentioned earlier with uh, the, the Momraths. Now, does anybody know what that means? Why, why are they Momraths? No, but they're adorable. It's they just a word that Lewis Carroll made up, just like Jabberwocky and, you know, whatever that mm-hmm. other creature is. Bandersnatch. I mean, Bandersnatch, yeah. it's, it's, and I also okay. have to give. I also have to give props to the dog sweeper. I think so he's adorable, so right? Cute. We all need a dog sweeper. Yes, but I have to say that this part of the film. I mean, I confess that in during a couple times when I have, you know, gotten myself completely into the story and read between the lines like this, I have cried a time or two because she gets so distraught in the Tolji Wood. However, when I'm not having a moment of, you know. <clears throat> depth emotionally I I get lost in this scene it just drags and it's boring and I'm not really sure how this did not make the cutting room floor hit the cutting room floor I agree with you um, but from there we go uh, we have the, the Cheshire Cat's reappearance and he sort of opens the door out of nowhere in the middle of a tree that takes us uh, to to the painting the roses red scene, which all right, I'm gonna go all JL and get deep on y'all. Woo-hoo. Watch out, I'm gonna drop some knowledge. Uh, so the painting the roses red part to me symbolizes the way uh, that we again, like you keep saying, JL, societal way of we we've paint, come up with something beautiful, right? These these white roses that are rare and beautiful, but because the certain person in power or whomever that person may be doesn't like it that way, we're going to destroy that to make it seem like it's what they want. Yes. And I felt that was that definitely is uh, what I took from this scene. And I, I but secondarily to that it's a really cool song too. It is a rockin' song. Some of the best music comes out of this scene where, you know, we've got the cards that enter. But I also take away from that scene um, the nonsensical habit in our society of not owning up to our mistakes. Just uh, not taking responsibility for our actions and then the consequences that, you know, come as a result of that. Yeah. I also want to make mention of the scene where the deck of cards are voiced by Mellow Men, who also sang for many Disney films, including Lady and the Tramp. Uh, they sang for a few episodes of The Wonderful World of Color, and I believe their voices are in the Winnie the Pooh ride during the Heffalump scene. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think, I, I don't know, Todd may know this, but I, I, are they not the, uh, the singing bust in the Haunted Mansion as well? Ooh, I don't know, to be honest. All right. Maybe right. I'm I'm gonna check that out. Oh. This Google moment has been brought to you by exactly. They are. <laughs> they are. <laughs> so you're right, and gentlemen. I was correct. That yes, done. singing bust in the in the haunted mansion. Wow! Awesome. Nice. Google is your friend. Yes. All this fun stuff. All right. Yep. And then we have the Queen of Hearts and the King that make their entrance. Um, my my monthly alter ego and the little King. And let me ask you, um, 
when the king gets introduced, there's this little hooray after, you know, they announce his name. Do you all yes. think that's Mickey Mouse? It sounds like Mickey Mouse to me. Like Mickey likes the king. Hooray! Really? Oh, I never thought of that. It could be. I, I don't think at this point Walt was still voicing Mickey, but, you know, he originally was the voice of Mickey Mouse. But I don't know. It, it, it's entirely possible, right? Because if it wasn't Walt, um, then, you know, you would assume that whomever was the voice of Mickey at that time would have been, you know, on the roster and, you know, part of the uh, part of the voice talent that they would have used for the film. So, I mean, it makes sense that it, that it could have been. So, JL, I was just uh, wondering if you would please give us your insightful input on why you think the king is so much smaller than the queen. Um, that's a very difficult thing to answer. Um, I don't know that I have a comment about why the king is smaller or, you know, maybe not a comment that's appropriate for the podcast. But I do think that the, um, I do think that the relationship the marriage relationship there between the two is very very interesting you know it's it's very obvious that you know underneath the big hoop skirt the queen is the one who wears the pants in the family but um at the same time no one is able to reach the queen like the king does you know everyone else if they say boo to the queen it's off with their head but, you know, the little king, as soon as he says, oh, my dear, my dear, what about, you know, and she says, oh, very well then, you know, or whatever. And she will um, appease him. If it hadn't been for the king, you know, Alice would have never even actually had a trial at all as, you know, unjust as it was. At least she had one. And that's because, you know, the king said, oh, can we please have a trial, please? And um, so, yeah, I don't. I don't really have a comment as to why he's smaller, but I do find that relationship a rather intriguing one. And probably there's probably another comment on some marriage relationships in society right there with that too. We that's, won't that's go down that road. Yeah. No, no we won't. That's, uh, that's with my train of thought as well. So, okay. yeah. yeah, no. Yeah. We won't go there. Uh, so, JL brought up the trial, which happens right after the nice croquet scene. Um, I, I don't really have much to say about that scene, except for there's a nice sh the the playfulness with the uh, is it flamingos? I guess that they're using as a croquet mallets. Flamingos and hedgehogs as the balls. And hedgehogs as the balls, and the cards, of course, jump out of the way when Alice hits, and uh, try to jump over the ball when the when the queen hits. Uh, of course, Alice is subjected to trial because the Cheshire Cat gets her in trouble. Your friend JL. The Cheshire Cat gets her in trouble. Yes, he's a troublemaker. But I kind of, you know, sometimes the troublemakers are the ones that you just, you find them so cute and endearing, and you love them in spite of their troublemakerness. You know what? I, th I think, yeah, I was really thinking about this, and I think that the, um, the Cheshire Cat came in at that moment to save Alice, to help her. I think he decided, you know what, you've had enough of this dream. It's time to wake up now. So let's just get this over with. You know, and that's, it's really kind of funny that you say that too, because um, this is kind of skipping to the end, so we'll have to backtrack some. But when they are running, you know, when she's running through that tunnel to come out of her dream, those are Cheshire Cat stripes, if I'm not mistaken. Right? Mm -hmm. They are. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's right. Uh, yeah, that's right. 
Right, and the whole thing commuted the purple and the pink, just like the Cheshire Cat. So yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So right before the scene that Jail's just talking about is the trial, of course, that the that the king uh, encourages the queen into having, and it becomes sort of a farce of you know the, it's a farce of a trial that then becomes even more of a farce when Alice grows in size and then shrinks back down in size. Uh, but it's it's it sort of goes back to what you were saying earlier, Todd, about how when she grows in size, of course, she feels free to tell the queen off and tell her whatever you know is on her mind and how much of a tyrant she is. And then as she shrinks, you know that those words start going away rather rapidly. Right. It's the difference between her her confidence and you know ebbing and flowing. Can right. I ask you? Do you all think that this is a commentary on um, the nonsense of bureaucracy in our society? I do now. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't even think it. I don't even think it gets a chance to say it, right? Because it. It. I mean, it may very well have been intended to be that, but I don't. Because of the people that they chose to have be the witnesses, I don't think you ever get to really play on that. I mean, she's skipping to the. She, she's skipping the right to the verdict because the verdict comes before the actual trial in her mind, and um, you go from there. In you know, she, they bring in the Mad Hatter and the March Hare and the Dormouse, and there, there is no trial. I mean, there's, there's, and well, I'm not fond of our legal system myself. I think that, um, well, I'm not going to do too heavy a political thing here. I, I think that this failed in actually pointing out problems with the legal system. It was just more a way to get all the characters in one place at one time to finish things off true but if you think about it though it's just a lot of bureaucratic nonsense it's a waste of time they talk about irrelevant information the people that they bring in are irrelevant to the situation and it leads to an irrational conclusion this was 51 ryan were we in the mccarthy era yet Mm, probably at the beginning stages of it hold on google is my friend again but i'm pretty sure yes because there was you know jail makes that point but that's the only thing that it's the only reason i could think that it would it would make sense is if it was that time well not not to get too um too too political and wrapped up into waltz history here but um I don't know how much you guys know. So Joseph McCarthy, a senator from Wisconsin, had this grand thing where he accused basically everyone of being um, a a communist. Um, The thing that you have to understand about this is – and it's a good thought, Todd, because he he basically started in 1953 is what I'm – I've kind of quickly Googled it. But the problem with that that theory is that – Walt actually sympathized with him a great deal. Um, he? he did. It's a whole. There's a whole kind of untold story to that uh, that we we don't have time to get into tonight. But well, and um, technically, this isn't Walt's story. This is Lewis Car- Carroll's story, which is right. from a whole other century. Yeah, but the trial's not necessarily very close to the actual story. You know. True. All right, but so moving on past the trial, let's let's try to uh, gather the things back together as Alice does, and um, she she basically exits through the trial and is chased back to the surface through these Cheshire Cat stripes that JL described, and and comes out of the dream. Uh, I, I just have to say quickly that I think that whole the way they wrap everything up is brilliant. How they show the glimpses of everything that she's been through, just as a wrap up. 
And yeah, doesn't, I mean, that, doesn't that remind you of when you are actually coming out of your sleep, like you're in that REM stage? Have you ever felt that when you are about to wake up and it's kind of like these flashes of everything in your mind all at once and then you're awake? Oh. Yeah, and then like five minutes after you're awake, most of the time you forget everything. I have a feeling Alice did not, but, you know, yeah. I'm usually just awake. Yeah, I'm with you. They, these women are too deep for us, Todd. <laughs> um, so she wakes up and uh, basically kind of comes to the realization um, that, you know, she doesn't necessarily need a world entirely composed of nonsense, but that there is a balance between the two um, that would serve her quite well. There's so, definitely a turn that happens with her at the tea party. She certainly gets her fill of the Mad Hatter and the March Hare. And Bree, you were going to say something actually about the writing desk riddle. Am I right? What makes a raven a writing desk? Right. And right. They totally turn that on her. And she gets to a point where she's just like, I've had enough. And if you'll notice, it's in that moment where she's been so focused on getting this white rabbit to the point where it's actually silly. You know, like she's going to drown in the sea of tears and everything. And even still then, even then, she's like, no, but I got to find the rabbit. You know, you'd think she would have, you know, lost it, you know, forget the rabbit. I'm going to drown, you know, or I can't get out of the caucus race or whatever. But she holds on to that rabbit until she gets to the tea party. And then she's like, enough, like I'm done with this. And that's, it's at that point that she starts trying to get home. Absolutely. You're right. Absolutely right. All right. So, uh, any other things you guys want to throw out there before we rate this movie and take this puppy home? Um, well, I, I want to make a couple comments. Um, one is, this is, you know, there, there is a quote from a great science fiction movie that has no sequels, I swear. Uh, <laughs> where um, Does it have where, Harrison Ford in it? No, oh. it does not. I'm sorry, but it, it's... Um, so great is a loose term. Then. I, I, no, I'm talking about The Matrix. Oh. Okay, and we all know there's a great... There, there, this, there is, this movie is referenced in the matrix right when when he's pulling neo and he's trying to turn neo into to show him what the real world is like and there's that moment you know he offers them the red pill goes, or the blue pill that's blue pill and he says i imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like alice hmm? tumbling down the rabbit hole you know complete you know it's it's completely referenced and again going back to the fact that that's probably the most famous quote to ever come out of alice in wonderland is that concept of going down the rabbit hole you say it to people and people understand it I've never you know, seen Matrix either. You need to. Oh. You need to. Yeah, just it has no sequels, I swear. And that <laughs> and that one is and that one is definitely a commentary on society, so Yeah. Um, I mean if you want me to be honest, I mean there's 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 a lot of similarity in this because remember they were trying the the original uh concepts behind this that were car- you know, the animation wise were um, you know, concepts from Fantasia and concepts from, you know, Three Caballeros and Saludos Amigos, and that was all kind of sort of where the, the animation kind of steered towards once it steered away from the linear stuff from the original Carol stuff, and that, the visuals that they pulled from that, it, it, conceptually, it's, it's a lot like what they do in Blade Runner, where they're constantly throwing images and ideas at you the whole time, okay, and you 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 laugh and you smile and I know everybody's going, Oh, Todd just had to throw in a Blade Runner. <laughs> but but seriously, if if you if you pay attention to the con- to the concepts of what, what Wonderland is, there's a lot of nonsense being thrown at you, and you think about the concept of in 
in Blade Runner when you're walking down the street and the ads are changing to match you rather than just being generic ads to society and your your world is following you and it's a crazy world right you have you know faces the size of skyscrapers on blimps you know and and things that don't things that don't make sense even in even in a sane world i mean blade runner is just it's a visual you know thing and there's a lot going on visually in this movie which is i think what carries it a lot of the time See, I was going with a different movie, a, a Pixar film. It, to me, it's like when Wally gets onto the Axiom. It's a very similar thing, right? When he's on Earth, there's a simple routine and a and a sameness to what he's doing. But when he right. gets into the Axiom, like even us as the viewer, we're like, this makes no sense. When when, when he meets, what is it, John is the um is the name of the character that he right. knocks off the thing, right? The whole John it's, thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the same idea that you were just discussing with Blade Runner, yeah, right? Where exactly. things are changing and it's the visual overload and all this kind of thing. So. Yeah, you were, you were talking earlier about how the Mad Hatter was very famous, and I want to say that um, the, the people who were doing um, Batman in the late 60s and early 70s absolutely loved this Disney adaptation, this movie, and they actually based a lot of the characters from that time period on the versions of Carol's characters that come from the Disney movie. So Batman actually has enemies that are Tweedledee and Tweedledum and the Mad Hatter and the whole, the whole range there. Um, there's also um, the, the Joker is actually, the smile of the Joker is actually literally based on the Cheshire Cat. It, that is where it comes from. You know, that's, it's not, he's not just the clown person, his smile, that huge grin, that, that concept of insanity slash super sanity that you were kind of talking about before, that's all worked into the whole Batman thing. So it's, you know, it's great. It's right there. Yeah, this movie's been taken, or this, this story, I should say, more so than just the movie, it's been taken uh, and, and blown out in a bajillion different ways. But the, the whole idea of, of, entering an insane world is it's been in innumerable numbers of you know books movies tv shows everything all right so let's let's wrap this up all right uh one to five brie alice in wonderland i am going to give it a solid four even though many of the scenes are nonsensical that's the way the movie is um but you know i'm going to have to disagree for once uh, with walt because he called it a film without heart. I do think it is a film with a lot of heart and a lot of emotion. And it, it like JL was saying, it displays a lot of emotions that we have within us going through life, decisions we have to make. So, and again, like Todd was saying, it's visually beautiful. And yeah, so I give it a four. All right, Todd. Well, I'm going to go a little bit lower than that. <laughs> um, I, I, like I said, I love the visuals of this movie. I do not like its uh, jumpy nature much at all. Um, you know, but that's just me. So I'm going to have to go with two and a half stars. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I, was waiting, sorry. I, was waiting, I was waiting for JL. <laughs> so I'm going to get hit when I walk out of this room. <laughs> I was say. No, I'm not going to criticize. I'm not going to criticize anybody else's rating of the film. I'm giving it, I'm not, it's my favorite Disney movie, but I'm not even going to give it a five. I am going to give it a four because um, I can step outside of myself and realize that the reason that I really appreciate this movie is simply because of the story and the reading between the lines that I do, you know, just for my personal self. Um, 
you know, I know that as a film, it's very segmented. It, it definitely feels like a bunch of little separate stories that were just kind of put one after the other. Um, and it definitely takes effort. It takes effort to see what, you know, what really makes this film a great film. So since it's not that easy, I don't give it a five, but I definitely give it a four. I, I love the, the whimsy of it. I love the, the vivid, larger than life wonderland world. Um, I love the characters, even though they're, you know, not, um, carried throughout, you know, the film continually, and there's not a whole lot of character development that goes on. For the little bit that these characters are given, they shine. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going with four, and Alice, I love you, girl. Word. So I was going to, when we were uh, walking in this movie, uh, before we did the show, give this a two, because, frankly, I just didn't get it. Um, JL, you've turned me around just in the discussion of the film because I'm going to watch it again now because a lot of the things you were saying actually made a lot more – the film made a lot more sense to me as you were talking. So I, I will give it a provisional three. Hooray! Um, as, we, as, as we go out this week, I will give it a provisional three, and I am going to watch it again, having, having discussed it with you now, and I'm going to see if, if I pick up on all the things that you were talking about. Because as you were talking, I was going, oh, wow, she's right. Yeah, that does make sense. Okay, all right. There's sense so, in the nonsense. There right. is. And Ryan, if that doesn't work, you can always say that Alice is Princess Leia. There you go. And there you go. <laughs> Which makes the Cheshire Cat Chewbacca the Wookiee. Right. <laughs> it all comes back to Star the Wars. The king is Obi-Wan Kenobi. <gasps> hey, a tiny hey! one. <laughs> and I'm very frightened. All right. <laughs> So that's going to do it for our show this week. Uh, we hope you have enjoyed our look at Alice in Wonderland. Uh, thank you very, very much to Miss JL Knott for joining us and illuminating this film for me uh, and for all of you out there in Radio Land. Uh, until next week, stay in touch with all of us. We are all on Twitter probably way entirely too much of our lives. Um, visit us at DisneyFilmProject.com. Uh, you can visit JL and see her musings at DisneyDrivenLife.com as well as you know occasional posts from myself. Um, and chief technical wizardry from, from Mr. Perlmutter. Uh, touringplans.com for, for JL and Todd and myself. You'll see our, our bloggeration there. Uh, and you can get the exclusive blog action of, of Miss Brianna Alessio at Adventures of Brie at adventuresofbrie.blogspot.com. Uh, if you like this show, please tell your friends. Leave us a review on iTunes. Tell 6,752 people that you know about this show. Um, and, and we will get the rest of them to come. Uh, Pull it up. For... You, you spread the word. Please join us in our admiration of the wide world of Disney films. <laughs> and we'll see you next week. Bye, everyone. Later. Bye.